is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in depth. I'm Chris Seaton. I'm Charles Feldman. LA's next mayor says she's ready to go and get things done. Being a coalition builder is about marshalling all of the resources, all of the skills, the knowledge, the talent of this city. That is what being a coalition builder is about. Karen Bass's big plans to tackle L.A.'s biggest problems as she becomes the city's first female mayor. We'll go in depth into what can realistically be accomplished and when. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi makes a big announcement about her future. This comes as Republicans are figuring out how they want the House to run. And could the collapse of the cryptocurrency firm FTX be worse than Enron? Remember Enron? Well, the answer may surprise all of us. Taylor Swift, her concert tickets are in such high demand, not even Ticketmaster is ready to handle it. That's gotten the company into a little bit of trouble. Might have to deal with it very soon. We'll go in depth on that. Starbucks workers... They're on strike at dozens of stores right across the country. We'll look into whether they can win their fight against this major, major company. If you have a dog, imagine taking care of a few more. How about a dozen? <laughs> Tough, right? What about several dozen? One woman apparently did just that in Riverside County. And there's a new study out that finds there's something to the expression, life flashes before your eyes. We start, though, with Karen Bass taking over soon as mayor of Los Angeles. With us is L.A. Councilman Karen Price, Jr. Thanks for being with us. She has great ambitions. She articulated that during debates and also today that she wants to hit the ground running. What can she realistically accomplish, especially with a city council that has sort of moved somewhat to the left of where she claims to be now. Well, you know, hi. First of all, it's good to be with you uh, th- this afternoon. I think she's going to be able to accomplish quite a bit. You know, she's got the kind of positive, uh, uh, progressive attitude. It's going to be very, very important. She's highly qualified. She's got the background, training, and experience, uh, not just around notions around social equity and, and social justice, uh, you know, but as a really fierce advocate for our communities. And so I, I think she's going to be able to get a, a lot done. Uh, certainly, there's going to be a, a pressure from the council, uh, but I'm confident, again, that we're going to be working as a cohesive body, uh, in, working in conjunction with the mayor uh, as we chart some new new ground and uh, do some new things. And so I'm, I'm very excited. In her speech earlier today, she said good jobs and affordable housing is on the way. Does she have the solutions? I know Rick Caruso talked about hundreds of beds or homes uh, in in his priority list when he gets into office. Uh, does she have the solutions? Well, I, I think she's got uh, the, the right attitude. You know, it's got to be a collaborative effort. As she has said, she can't do it alone. Uh, and so it's going to take uh, uh, input ideas from public sector, private sector, philanthropic uh, community. Uh, I think she's on the right track, though. She realizes we have to do more and we have to do it faster and we got to do it better. Well, Uh, and and as you know, I mean, she says that uh, on day one, she's going to declare an emergency. I'm not quite sure what that will accomplish. Are you clear as a city council person what exactly uh, that will do? I'm not clear what it accomplishes, but I know right away it demonstrates another level of commitment, Uh, you know, a... a, uh, uh, no, I agree with you, but rhetoric is one thing, and action, as you know, is is another. So, uh, okay, so, uh, so she, you know, I think I think Reddit, Reddit, the the the, uh, uh, the words are starting to precede the actions. So I think uh, we're all going to be finding ways, looking at ways to cut red tape, uh, speed uh, things up, provide greater resources to address the issues around housing, uh, 
uh, and our homeless neighbors. So I, I'm, I'm confident that, uh, that we're going to be able to accomplish quite a bit in a short period of time. Mr. Price, your name has not come up in the midst of it, but will she be able to change the nature of corruption that we, the people of Los Angeles, have seen at L.A. City Hall in recent years? Well, certainly her reputation is impeccable. Uh, and she's got high standards for not only how she operates, but how those operate with her and around her. And so, uh, you know, I think that she's going to have the kind of uh, attitude and presence uh, that's going to uh, encourage confidence, uh, encourage collaboration, uh, and encourage folks to uh, realize we're in this together. She did, of course, as you know, uh, uh, go through publicly what uh, is her plan to deal with the homeless. Is there anything that, as part of the city council, which, as you know, in the city has an enormous amount of power, in many ways more than uh, the mayor does, uh, is there anything that you think is is deficient that you would like to add uh, to her plan as part of this emergency declaration? Well, uh, you know, again, the plan hasn't been laid out in any detail yet, but I'm hopeful that the council and the mayor will be in lockstep. You know, we, we, we don't need 15 or 16 plans. We need one plan. And so I'm confident she's going to be able to uh, forge a consensus, uh, bring resources, uh, and inspire the kind of confidence that's going to be necessary for us to uh, address these major issues that are facing our community. How much time do you want to give her to accomplish something that you would consider to be substantial? Well, you know, um, uh, people are impatient. The community wants change now. They want to see some differences now. And so... Uh, I'm going to be working closely with her to make sure we can do as much as possible as soon as possible uh, so that we can begin the process of restoring faith in our city government. With so many issues to deal with, I have heard some people say, these are people who are backing Rick Caruso, they said, you know, a Karen Bass term would be another Eric Garcetti term and that Rick Caruso might be the one who could bring real change to City Hall. Do you see that concern well, no, I, I don't see the concern, and obviously the majority of uh, voters didn't either. You know, she's got uh, an exemplary background, as I said before, training and experience, a, a history of working together, a history of collaborating, uh, building coalitions, and uh, uh, creating an inclusive kind of government. And so uh, I, I'm excited about uh, the prospects for the future. I think the community is as well. We all are going to be waiting to see. Uh, but as she has said, we all have to roll up our sleeves and be a part of this process. I, I am curious, before we let you go, uh, with Eric Arcetti, uh the current mayor, about to leave office, he also wanted to uh, take care of the homeless problem. He said that over and over during his tenure as mayor. Why do you think he wasn't able to accomplish it and she can? Well, I think that, uh, you know, there there's another level of resources coming online that uh, will help address that. I think there's a greater sense now. That it is not uh, that it's a community-wide problem, city-wide problem, and that uh, you know the times call for a different level of intensity and commitment. Uh, and so, again, she represents those things, and I'm I'm confident that uh, we're going to see some changes soon. Okay, L.A. City Council Member Curran Price, Mr. Price, thank you. Right now, big changes to the House of Representatives. Republicans are taking over in January and have their own agenda. Today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced she's stepping down from any uh, Democratic leadership roles moving forward, but she's going to remain, she says, as a congresswoman. Billy House is uh, Bloomberg's congressional reporter. Billy, thanks for being with us. 
So so she uh, steps down from leadership. She remains uh, in the House. But I suspect just because of virtue of, of who she is and her past and her historic role in the House of Representatives, I would imagine she still is going to be a one powerful person. Yeah, well, in fact, she said herself on Sunday that I will always uh, have influence over the caucus, but certainly her sitting in the room as the uh, Speaker Emeritus is going to cause, you know, uh, everybody to look at her and get nods or winks whenever the new speaker or the new minority leader, I'm sorry, wants to do something. Uh, what are you hearing about who the new minority leader will be? Uh, I've heard Adam Schiff's name mentioned, although he has said he's not looking at it. Steny Hoyer. Uh, there's a lot of talk about Hakeem Jeffries. Yeah, things move fast today. Uh, Adam Schiff has uh, had previously said no. I, I mean, his people were saying no, he's not going to do that. But today, the number two House Democrat, Steny Hoyer, and the number three, uh, Jim Clyburn, both said they were standing as. Uh, they were not going to go for it. And instead, Hakeem Jeffries, the younger 52-year-old New Yorker, Brooklyn, uh, Queens representative, uh, seems to have a glide path to that uh, being selected the new top leader, probably on November 30th when they hold their elections. And uh, in terms of the Republicans, uh, of course, the Republicans had voted to uh, have Kevin McCarthy from California, but right. that doesn't mean it's a done deal. Does he have any serious opposition? And is there any real sense that he might not get the job that he's coveted for quite some time now? Oh, yeah, that's a very real uh, difficult path for him. Uh, and his opposition isn't necessarily any single opposing candidate, but just his own popularity within his own caucus. The, the process is complicated, but basically in the 435 seat House, you need 218 votes. That's both parties voting, but you need 218 to be elected speaker. If your party is only 200 and, uh, you know, 20 members solid and 30 of them didn't vote for you as, as, the, uh, as the GOP leader, you can see the problems there. You're already behind. Then throw in there that some might throw up Trump's name that day, January 3rd, on the floor, or anybody's name. Any, You don't have to be a lawmaker to be nominated, so a lot of mischief could happen. Yeah, there's also an awful lot of talk about the fact that if he had a major majority, if we did, in fact, see this red wave that so many people had talked about, that uh, some of the minority, uh, the, the Freedom Caucus, uh, which is, a, well, not a slim minority, but a big part of his his party, um, that they would have less say. Now the fact that Kevin McCarthy has will will enter with such a slim majority, the Freedom Caucus will have an awful lot to say. I guess the question coming from all that is just how difficult will it be for Kevin McCarthy? Very difficult. First of all, of course, the, the Democrat will still be in the White House. Uh, Democrats will still control the Senate. And so what you're left as, even if you're controlling the House Republicans, you're left with nothing but um, messaging bills. They can't even agree on their message. And uh, so you can see that there's it's not likely to be a very productive two years heading to the presidential 2024 year for Republicans. They got to somehow Kevin McCarthy and his colleagues come up with a coherent sort of program 
but there's no coherency, at least in these early stages, uh, with him not even being able to get all, all his members to vote for him. You know, Billy, earlier today I was doing something for a, uh Australian radio station, and they were asking me, they were trying to understand American politics, which, you know, good luck to them. Good luck with that one, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they were saying, well, you know, let me understand this. This is what their host was saying to me. Uh, so the House of Representatives is going to be the Republicans in control. The Senate is going to be the Democrats in control, he said. Doesn't that mean that nothing gets done? And I guess my answer to him was uh, kind of, you know, was I did I give the right answer? You did give the right answer, probably for this era. I mean, in American history, there have been moderate Republicans before and there have been conservative Democrats. And a lot of members of Congress would would try to work together to get something done for the good of the country. In this uh, in these latest uh you know, a couple decades, uh, that's uh, almost uh, a, uh, unpartable sin So for a lot of lawmakers. So that's kind of the problem. It's going to be very difficult to get anything done in this Congress, especially since everybody's already keying up for the 2024 White House race. All right. Billy, thank you for your time. Again, that's Billy House, Bloomberg's congressional reporter. Coming up, we're going to take a look into a very unusual animal hoarding case in the desert of Southern California. And science may have confirmed the idea that life really does flash before your eyes. Right now, though, the collapse of the cryptocurrency trading firm FTX might just be bigger than previously thought. The new CEO, who also oversaw Enron's bankruptcy, says he's never seen such a complete failure. Corporate control calls the mess unprecedented. Gabriella Cruz is CEO of the Digital Global Digital Asset and Cryptocurrency Association. She joins us now on In Depth. Gabriella, thank you for taking some time for us. When we say this is likely bigger than first thought, how bad is it and why? That when John Jay III stepped into this, what he soon found out is that he was unable to rely on any of the financial information and really had a difficult time discerning what it was that had actually been going on. Um, I think it's also unprecedented based on the lack of internal controls, risk management procedures, and just basic foundational common sense business self-discipline. So let me ask you this, because there are people, of course, out there who are not really into cryptocurrencies. And and as I was kind of joking before the commercial break, they probably think that FTX is some sort of a... uh, uh, you know, like a, a streaming service for television programs. Uh, can you explain to the average person who may not be into cryptocurrency why this is a big deal? Because it is a big deal. Yeah. Um, well, it's a big deal because at the core of this, what we're starting to find out is that this isn't so much about crypto as it is about um basic good corporate governance and business responsibility. And so I think when we look at this, the level of what is appearing more and more to be fraudulent behavior, the fact that it was able to pass by so many supposed checks um, and also the degree to which this firm had been engaging in Washington, D.C. and engaging with legislators and regulators, all of this you start to unwind as well as the degree to which you know this is impacting retail consumers so you know a lot of times we see different types of scandals or issues it it may hit one firm it may hit other institutions but how often does it hit retail on this level and then i think the next piece of it is just the complexity of you know what we're starting to untangle with ftx how many organizations it actually um, has impacted the new CEO saying complete failure, unprecedented mess. Can they turn this around? Can it be turned around? 
Well, I think that's what we're going to see going forward. You know, I had actually, before any of this had come to lay, I had said that this is a bit of a hashtag Enron moment for the crypto industry. And I actually think it's a little bit of a hashtag FTX up. <laughs> um, and that's not to make light of the situation. It's actually just to underline the degree to the level, I think, of depravity that this firm had sunk in terms of public trust, in terms of basic consumer protections, customer protections of funds, and then its role and responsibility in the industry. Am I also correct that uh, this particular company, besides having its own <laughs> clearly financial issues, because of the money involved, were they not invested in many, many other companies that now are in trouble? Yes, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about what the level of impact is going to be. Because as John Jay the Third stepped in and you know is still kind of trying to untangle this mess, it's only going to it's going to take some time to understand the level of interconnectedness um, and who all is going to potentially be ensnared in a lot of this bankruptcy proceeding. All right. Gabriella, thank you for your perspective against that uh, Gabriella Coos. She's the CEO of the Global Digital. Asset and Cryptocurrency Association. This is KNX In-Depth with Chris Edens. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, Taylor Swift, so popular. A demand for her upcoming concert tickets across the country has led to some big problems with Ticketmaster. So much so, the tickets will no longer be put on sale to the general public tomorrow because... There aren't enough to meet demand. Fans have recently dealt with countless issues in the pre-sale period earlier this week, including Ticketmaster's website crashing in extremely long wait times. Yeah, so many people had uh, pre-sale codes that were found where no tickets uh, available for them when they finally got to the front of the virtual line. The Tennessee Attorney General is now opening an investigation, and Minnesota Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar sent a letter to Ticketmaster's CEO expressing serious concerns. With us is Jem Aswad, who is the Deputy Music Editor for Variety. Jem, thanks for being back with us. So why is this becoming a uh, escalated to the point where you've got a United States senator sending letters, you've got another state's attorney general opening an investigation? What's going on? Well, first of all, the, the letters to Ticketmaster's CEO. Ticketmaster is, of course, owned by Live Nation, which is the largest entertainment company in the world. Those are nothing new. Um, there were letters sent after the Bruce Springsteen ticket sale snafus uh, over the summer. They've been sent several times over the years, so that's nothing new. Um, you know, the bigger picture is, is Ticketmaster a monopoly? Possibly it is. That's not for us to decide. But the reality is the the upshot of all this is the fact that when you've got 5,000 people trying to get into a place that holds 500 all at the same time, things are going to break down. It's terrible for everybody. It's a horrible situation, but it is largely, almost entirely due to the enormous demand for these tickets. Yeah, Taylor Swift, so, so popular. Uh, have we ever seen something this bad before? You mentioned Bruce Springsteen. I remember when that came up a while back, but something this big? I mean, there's. it feels like every time it happens, it's huge. You know, there was a big, there was a similar thing around Adele tickets going on sale in Las Vegas. It's a little hard to remember um, because the pandemic obviously shut everything down for a couple of years. But 
it's really just been an escalating series of this over the years, um, ever since tickets uh, first went on sale online, really, although I imagine there were probably, you know, uh, 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 uproar outside stadiums for Beatles tickets, you know. <laughs> I, I'm going to start with with the premise that may be wrong. Uh, the premise that the people who run things like Ticketmaster are smart, uh, and if that is a correct premise, then how is it that they don't anticipate this? I mean, take St- Taylor Swift, who hasn't done a uh, live concert in a good number of years, right? Uh, at least a couple. And how is it that they don't know or anticipate that when she finally says, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm now going to tour." that they are going to be deluged with her millions of fans who want to see her? Why is it a surprise? Um, I think they ended up being exponentially more deluged than even their highest expectations were. I've, you know, I mean, I've met with these people. I've spoken with these people multiple times. Yes, they're very smart. They know what they're doing. There's a reason they're in this job. Um, but there, there's a very detailed explanation on the Ticketmaster website of what went wrong. And one of the things that they had not anticipated was they got swarmed by bots. They said there was something like 3.5 billion uh, requests. I guess that's like, you know, each incoming request for a ticket. Um, which was something like four times more than they'd ever experienced. And, you know, maybe there is a reason they could have or should have anticipated that. But I I do get the sense that they were as prepared for this as they thought they could be. And I'm not trying to make excuses for Ticketmaster. It may be a monopoly. Uh, The, the, Ticketing industry is certainly corruptible. I'm not going to go out and say it's corrupt. Um, but, you know, it's a very, very difficult process to to execute, especially when you've got 3.5 billion incoming requests all at once. Well, Jim, let me ask you this then. What needs to be done? What can be done to figure this out, to fix the problem? Or or can it be fixed? Um. At this point, I don't think it can be fixed on the scale that it needs to be. Now, I've actually spoken to people who really did not have that much trouble getting Taylor Swift tickets or getting Harry Styles tickets, even people two days ago. Now, um, one tactic that a lot of people have done is instead of trying to buy tickets for the New York City show, they might try to buy them for the Philadelphia show and travel because there's going to be less demand there. That that really is a fact. Even if you've got an 80,000-seat stadium in, in one city and a 50,000-seat stadium in a slightly smaller city, your chances there are probably going to be better. Um, so the the verified fan system, um, which Ticketmaster has rolled out and which is getting criticized pretty extensively right now, can work you know um the the challenge is again just the enormous demand and the swarming of bots because the problem that they keep confronting is the fact that it's really a game of whack-a-mole with the secondary market the scalpers you know um there are legit second secondary market uh, uh uh vendors and there are not legitimate ones and every time they think they've got it all figured out they, they find a new way. It is literally a game of whack-a-mole, which is why you're seeing tickets going on sale for, uh, on the secondary market for such absolutely mind-blowing amounts. I actually saw tickets, Taylor Swift tickets, on sale for $90,000. 
Christmas yesterday. <laughs> I mean, I'm, it's tragic, but oh, I'm laughing. Man. I certainly hope nobody paid for yeah. that. Um, but it really is that out of control. And you're dealing with a system that, you know, it's online. People can figure out a way to hack into it, no matter how tight your security is. So it's it's an ever evolving game of trying to keep the thing secure. They're getting closer, but obviously it's not. Right. How, how much would you say that ticket was? How much? Ninety five thousand dollars. I couldn't wow. believe it. Wow. And I, I was short a couple of bucks. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'll loan you a couple. Okay. okay. <laughs> Jim, thank you again. That's Jim Oswald, uh, deputy music editor for Variety. You know, usually um, when officials come across animal hoarding cases, the scenes are really ugly. Animals are neglected or they're abused and many have to be put down because they're just too sick. Yeah, uh, that's why this case, this particular case we're going to tell you about, this comes out of Cabazon area in, in Riverside County. It's it's different. Animal control officers found 72 dogs. You heard that right. 72 dogs inside an elderly woman's home. Now, here's the thing, though. There's no cruelty investigation. The dogs were all well-fed, taken care of. For the most part, they they did have to be taken away, though. John Welch is with the Riverside County Animal Services Department and joins us now to talk more about this. John, thank you. Uh, The dogs, as I mentioned, all well-fed, taken care of for the most part, but so many. Have you ever seen such a severe case as this? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, We've had a couple of these types of uh, situations in our county. Our county is so huge that... uh, there's a lot of places where people can live uh, with quite a number of animals. And you are right. These uh, um, animals were well cared for, but uh, far too many for, you know, a single family home. And uh, fortunately, the family member reached out to us, did the right thing, uh, asked for our help, and actually was a big player in assisting us. Uh, the daughter of the woman who owned the dogs actually transported all the dogs herself from the property to our San Jacinto Valley Animal Campus. So she was a big participant in assisting as well. So no animal cruelty charges, no animal cruelty investigation. The dogs, although a little bit yappy and some not used to being held, um, all pretty much uh, in good shape. Okay, so so now let, let's go back a little bit and, and see if we can understand how this came about. Uh, so this particular elderly woman... Uh, did she have any physical or psychological issues? And how did she have the money to support the feeding of 72 animals? Sure. The, well, I don't have her, her entire you know, medical history, but it was our understanding that uh, she's now in her 80s. And the daughter did indicate uh, that her mo- mother was starting to show signs of some dementia Um you know, and if if I was to take a step back even further to talk a, a little bit more about animal hoarding in general, not what, knowing the whole situation. No, but I, but I, I, I want to. Oh. I'm glad to have you do that. But I want to kind of zero in for the moment on on this particular case because it is unusual, or, or at least not yes. certainly not the norm. Um, so, because I, I want to understand this, so the woman has a daughter uh, or some family member who calls and says, you know, my mom's got 72 dogs. This didn't happen overnight, I presume. So she must have had these these dogs for quite some time. And that also raises the question, although 72 might be a bit much for one house, what would the legal grounds be for taking all the dogs away? Uh, so, yes, this did not happen overnight. More than likely, all these animals, all the dogs were not uh, spayed nor neutered. 
And so this was a cycle that just kept repeating itself over and over again. Um, it's uncertain if the daughter knew about um, how many actual dogs were there uh, at the property. Um, when she arrived, there were certainly too many for her to be able to handle them on her own. And so that's where she reached out to us. Um, you know, spaying and neuter these, these animals, you know, months and months and probably years earlier would have prevented it from getting this out of hand. And John, where will all the dogs end up? Will they all be able to be adopted out? Well, yeah. And actually, you know, we knew of this particular property about a week or so back. And so on the front end, before we agreed to actually uh, impound all the dogs, we reached out to some of our rescue partner organizations and three of our active uh, participants uh, stepped up and actually uh, each of those three groups took about the same amount, a third each. So they're all going to be going through the process of, of adoptions through those rescue organizations. And that's, uh, they're actually, one of them is based out of LA, uh, Wag or Studio City, I should say, Wagmore Rescue, uh, one organization out of Thousand, um, Thousand Oaks, and a one out of Ramona down in the San Diego area. Um, can, can, so, I, can I presume, though, John, that uh, these dogs, because, again, you, you said that they were well-fed and taken care of. So I'm presuming that they did supply some sort of companionship for this woman. Uh, yes, a- so is she now So is she now by herself in that house? And that goes back to my question I was asking a few minutes ago. Why take all the dogs away? I mean, why not leave a couple or whatever is a manageable amount uh, for the woman to have? Sure, sure. It's my understanding the daughter's actually going to be staying with the mom now. Uh, I I don't know if actually she kept one or two there, uh, but it's it appeared to us that all the animals that were there were brought to us. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, it's a situation where there's just way too many animals for this particular uh, daughter to care for. Uh, so we're very fortunate that uh, the rescue partners uh, really came to our aid to get the animals essentially out of our shelter care within less than 24 hours. So it's okay. kind of, it's basically a win for all the dogs because yeah. they're ultimately going to find new homes. And that's, that's a, that's the big plus here. Okay. John, thank you for your time again. That's John Wells. She's with Riverside County Animal Services. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Felt. Starbucks workers at more than 100 locations across the country, they are on strike today, which just happens to be the company's annual Red Cup Day. It's one of the busiest, busiest days of the year for Starbucks. Yeah, it's the largest labor action since a campaign to unionize Starbucks uh, stores began late last year. But can these workers win against a corporate giant, Lance Compa? is a senior lecturer at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations, is also a visiting professor at the University of San Diego Law School. Lance, thanks for being with us. So is it an uphill battle for these Starbucks employees? Um, Sure, it's an uphill battle. It's it's normal uh, in the kind of uh, economy that we live in for uh, workers to have uphill battles to uh, organize a union. Um, management has so many weapons at its disposal. Um, you know, uh, it can fire people for organizing and then wait out uh, months or even years of appeals with the National Labor Relations Board. And uh, 
So it's an uphill struggle, but uh, I think the Starbucks workers are demonstrating uh, that they're really committed to it uh, and that they're ready for the long haul. I think uh, everybody understands that uh, <clears throat> organizing in Starbucks and Amazon is, is not going to be a story of, of going from victory to victory, um, but of uh, consolidating your victories where you have them and then uh, moving on from there. Okay, so we've established it's going to be an uphill battle, uh, but is this a battle that they, the workers, can in fact win? Um, I think so. It's, it's uh, you know, winning winning is a long-term thing. Uh, getting Starbucks into a position of sitting down and negotiating with the union um, is is a struggle. Um, the workers have a lot to protest in these uh, in these strikes that are going on. Um, the company has fired people and closed stores uh, because of uh, union activity. Um, they're, they're punishing uh, workers who organized by withholding benefits that they gave to uh, other workers in un- unorganized stores, uh, which the National Labor Relations Board has found to be an unfair labor practice. Um, and, and there are you know proceedings underway with that. Um, apparently, recently, management has actually walked out of negotiations, um, protesting uh, that some workers are joining by Zoom into the negotiations. And workers participating by Zoom in negotiations uh, has become absolutely commonplace uh, since the pandemic. So, um, you know, the workers have a lot to protest, and um, I, I, I think they, uh, they uh, you know, this is a, a stage. One of the problems is the company has so many avenues to uh, delay the process. Um, I mentioned unfair labor practice proceedings, which can take months and even years. Uh, the company can drag out negotiations. Um, so, uh, you know, the union needs to figure out ways to keep their supporters motivated and energized and active. And I think this uh, this uh, action today is a way to do that. Um, I mean, I'm, and, and I- I'm I'm curious though, Lance. Does a company like Starbucks, uh, maybe also Amazon, which is also, as you know, having issues with some of its employees uh, trying to unionize, do these companies figure that most uh, of their employees are of a younger demographic and are not likely to make a career of being either at Starbucks or maybe even Amazon? So they figure they could run the clock. Uh, I do think that that figures into their calculations and, um, you know, time will tell whether they're right or not. Uh, I, I think there, there, there's evidence that, uh, this idea of, uh, organizing and, uh, union activity and collective bargaining is really taking hold in the, uh, in the generation of workers that are in, uh, Starbucks and in Amazon. Um, so I, I think there's a good chance that it can be sustained, uh, even with turnover, I mean, it'll be a hard job for the union to maintain that uh, that momentum and maintain the activity. Uh, but I, I think they're up to the task. And I think this generation of, you know, 20 somethings and early 30 somethings um, is uh, is ready for it and that they can do it. All right. Lance, thank you again. That's Lance Compass, senior lecturer at Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. You've heard of the phrase life flashes before your eyes, a new study out of New York University finds that there is some science behind that. It looked into men and women who received CPR in a hospital when their hearts stopped beating. Survivors telling researchers they experienced a perception of separation from the body, observing events without pain or distress. 
and a meaningful evaluation of life, including of their actions, their intentions, and thoughts towards others. The study says these are not hallucinations or dreams either. They're called unique lucid experiences. With us now, we've got a couple of guests, uh, Dr. David Gruner, Managing Director, Co-Founder, NYC uh, Surgical Associates. Uh, he had a near-death experience. Also, also, we've got Steve Sayer. Steve is a filmmaker who had two near-death experiences that inspired his new film that's Ghosts and the Afterlife. Uh, thank you for both of you for, for joining us today. Dr. Gruner, let's start with you. First of all, tell us about your near-death experience and also what you think about this study. How are you, sir? Um, so I, I was working out on my roof in Miami, which is on the seventh floor. Um, I basically dropped my uh, cell phone. Sorry about that. I dropped my cell phone on the, on one side of the balcony and Miami can get quite humid. So when I reached over to get the cell phone, I slipped on a wet tile and I fell seven floors. Wow. And nobody has ever survived over a fourth floor fall onto onto a hard surface um, ever before in that state. And so I was pretty much delegated to the death category. But um, I don't really remember a whole lot of things. I had some very, very weird dreams, I remember, but that could have been some of the psychotropics I was on. Or it could have been concussion. I don't know. But when I had when I when I think about it, I started to think about um, mine is more about how I survived, I guess. But I didn't really see a lot of things prior. I just I I had weird dreams. And when you say when you say you had weird dreams, this was what was the the period when you're having these dreams while you were in the hospital or 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 what? Yeah, I was in a coma for two weeks. Two weeks, so um, I, I I landed and I shat, I broke nineteen bones. Um, my uh, I but um, I don't think I took the full impact of the fall because I was a para jumper for a long time, and I think there was a pump. My my left hand was ripped in half, and I think what happened was I must have grabbed reflexively. Palm, a palm tree or something that made me swing to the side just before I hit the ground. Okay. Well, Dr. Dr. Gruner, I'll get you to hold on just a second. Now, the study that came out said that these, in fact, you mentioned dreams. The study says they're not hallucinations or dreams either. They call them unique, lucid experiences. Let's turn now to Steve Sayer. You've had two near-death experiences. Uh, if you can, capsulize them for us. Well, there is actually one near-death experience uh, and two uh, after-death experiences that took place. The one that I saw that was the most relevant to the article that you pointed out to me was the near-death experience, which was a 55-mile-an-hour head-on collision on a highway where the car came toward my car suddenly from the other side of the street. And within literally one second before the actual impact occurred, everything that I'd ever done in my life flashed before my eyes, so to speak. And uh, that was most relevant to the article and subject matter. Then there was the two uh, after-death experiences where I stopped breathing, I flatlined, et cetera, and they ultimately brought me back with a defibrillator, which was in a hospital setting. 
And that took place due to a uh, military injury. And ultimately, during a process where they were doing orthoscopic surgery, I uh, started bleeding extensively uh, from the uh, left anterior descending artery. And that's when the first flat line occurred. And then when it occurred, I immediately, probably within within a few minutes, I heard a voice which said, don't worry, you're going home, which was very confusing to me because I had no idea where home was. I never really thought of anywhere as home because I traveled so extensively as a child with my family and so extensively in the military. It didn't have any real specific meaning to me. Uh, so that's it, that's the three experiences in a nutshell. Doctor, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh... Steve's film, we mentioned it, the title is Ghosts in the Afterlife. Is there anything about your experience that you had that, uh, if you didn't before, has sort of uh, convinced you that there is such a thing as an afterlife? I have had multiple, actually, near-death experiences. Um, and, yes, one of them I do remember uh, my life flashing before my eyes. and. I remember thinking to myself that, you know what? I had a pretty good run at things. Hmm. That I felt lucky, actually, at peace. But it, it all happened in slow motion. Not every event, but a lot of events passed through and things that I did and things that I didn't do. And I, I was kind of like a very quick self-evaluation more than anything. And that was in a car accident. Uh, we're we're a little tight on time now, Steve. Maybe the final word to you. Maybe you might want to respond to what Dr. Gruner had to say. Yes, well, definitely the sense of peace and the sense of well-being was overwhelming during the experience. So that's the one thing I would add to the entire episode. And it happened twice because they brought me back uh, the first time, and then they kept me alive for a while, and then I flatlined again, and the same experience reoccurred. So it was a very overwhelming sense of peace. I also woke up in the middle of the operation, which was interesting. So there, it was open heart surgery ultimately mm. that had to do to repair the injuries. Okay. Steve, thank you again. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Uh, David Gruner and uh, filmmaker Steve Sayer. Life after death. On that note, that'll do it for this edition of KNX In Depth. For Charles, I'm Chris. Thanks for joining us. We're back again tomorrow.